0: 1941, a young actor by the name of William Allen went to a dinner party during the filming of Citizen Kane. He had a bit part in Orson Welles' classic, and he was schmoozing at this dinner party with the cast and crew and some other Hollywood names who were up and coming. He spoke to a Mexican cinematographer named Gabriel Figuera, who told Alland about the myth of a race of half-human, half-fish creatures who were living in the Amazon River. In 1952, Alland thought of this story again, this conversation he'd had over dinner 10 years ago, and decided to put it down to paper. Over the years, it was reworked and adapted, and it was built into a treatment, and then a screenplay, and then a 3D movie that became a seminal work of horror and the monster genre. Can you guess what it was called?
1: Yes, I can definitely guess what it was called. Robin Hood.
0: It was Robin Hood. It was the creature from the Black Lagoon.
1: Damn it, I was so close.
0: The classic monster movie of the half man, half fish, who walks out of the ocean and falls in love with a beautiful woman. Uh, many, many years later now, half a, half a century later, more, we have a new film on the big screen, Shape of Water that retells this story in a way, retells older stories and earlier stories that have reverberated throughout time and gives us a new spin on something that we feared, something that we thought was ugly, something that is now beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Midnight Myth. We are so excited for you to be here as we talk about The Shape of Water and some of the stories that influenced it and some of the new stories that are being carved out in its path. This is the uh, podcast where we talk about myths and legends and pop culture and how entwined they really all are.
1: Yeah, you know, I, uh, in prepping for this podcast, one thing that, you know, Gilmel del Toro, the writer, director, producer of Shape of Water, said that when he saw the Black Lagoon, the creature of the Black Lagoon, he kind of wished the ending was different and that the monster had gotten the girl. And I think, how privileged are we that we live in a universe in which Gilmore Del Toro saw that and then got to make that movie, which then swept so many awards at this year's Oscars?
0: It really does show you the cycle and the the continuing sort of revolving, endless cycles of storytelling and how they work their way throughout our subconscious and our, our stories that we tell each other so that... You know, more than 50 years ago, a Mexican cinematographer could have been telling an American actor about this myth that he once heard. And then today, a, uh, a Mexican uh, director and writer and producer is taking home the Oscars for a, a deeply innovative but also uh, deeply respectful of its own influences story that actually reaches back to some of our most ancient myths.
1: Yeah, so I think it goes without saying that we're going to spoil Shape of Water and uh, any of its, uh, you know, influencing stories. But uh, before we do that, Laurel, if anybody would like to get in touch with us, communicate with us, or support our podcast, how can they do so? The
0: first thing that you want to do is head over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you're getting your podcasts, and hit that subscribe button so new Midnight Myths pop up in your inbox every Monday morning. Uh, the next thing you want to do is maybe leave a rating or review to help us reach new audiences and tell your friends, tell your neighbors, and then connect with us on social media. We are on Facebook. We're on Twitter at the midnight myth, and we're on uh, Instagram at midnight myth podcast. You can also catch up with us at www.midnightmyth.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that. So one of the things that was super clear to me in reflecting on the shape of water, um, Was that it seemed to me to draw on another very famous classic story that is still fresh in the uh, pop culture. That would be Beauty and the Beast.
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, it has all of these beats. It has a woman that is not necessarily understood or respected by the community at large.
0: A funny girl, if you will.
1: It has a. Uh, a creature that is considered to be a monster or a beast that turns out to be more than what meets the eye. It has as its antagonist, a human man who is by all definitions, the standard male protagonist because they're strong and they're leaders and they have military gravitas. And um, through the, the, the story, we learn kind of at the end is that beauty is more than skin deep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Beauty like, really penetrates down to your soul, to your heart,
1: and that the the monstrous, the the ugly side of life uh, can also come from something that, on the surface level, seems beautiful. Uh, so I feel like there is a overlap between these two tales, and that might be an interesting place to begin. Because you articulated in the intro that the creature of the Black Lagoon is a huge like uh, point of reference is the motivator it's the like the or originator of this story however i think the spirit of the story goes back to beauty and the beast
0: it's important to note as well that the original stories that uh were written down about the creature from the black lagoon as they were developing this story were influenced by knowledge of the fairy tale beauty and the beast so it's something that really suffuses our sort of myth consciousness is this idea of the beastly creature and the beautiful woman who loves them. Uh, so we're, we're playing in the same uh, mythological or legendary sandbox here. Now, the original story of The Beauty and the Beast, uh, at least the uh, definitive literary version, is an 18th century French tale. And it articulates most of the beats that we're familiar with, most popularized, of course, by the 1991, I think, Disney adaptation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there have been so, so many adaptations of this story. That's about, of course, the uh, hideous monster who lives in a castle in France and the uh, young and beautiful woman who has to go and live with him for whatever reason because her father stole a rose uh, to, to please her. And she has to learn to love him, even though he has this beastly and ugly exterior, in order to break the curse that will allow him to become the uh, handsome prince that he used to be. So it's a story that reminds us that we have to look below the surface, and that we have to find the true beauty that lives within. And in its time, that's a really progressive message, of course. Like, beauty is more than what meets the eye. Uh, but it's a story that's been adapted so, so many times and a story that uh, is influenced by earlier myths as well. We can go all the way back to Greek mythology into Cupid and Psyche, which is a myth you're probably familiar with. Uh, It's the story of Cupid or Eros, the god of love, who falls in love with a beautiful nymph named Psyche. Uh, They're married, but she is not allowed to look upon him because he's the god of love. She doesn't know this. Uh, but she is so consumed by doubt and by uh, fear that she may have married a monster that she is convinced to go and look on him as he's sleeping and she drips a few drops of her candle wax on his face as he's sleeping and he wakes up and has to banish her and she's forced to complete these really grueling tasks in order to win him back because she's realized that she's in fact married to this incredibly beautiful god of love. Uh, and that's an ancient, ancient story.
1: Damn, that sucks to be Psyche.
0: Oh, man. And she's being thwarted by Aphrodite as well, who's super jealous and doesn't want her son married to this beautiful creature, uh, so on and so forth. That's,
1: that's so interesting because if we link uh, Cupid and Psyche kind of as bell and Beast... And then uh, the creature and and Eliza, yes, Eliza. Wow, I just totally blanked out. I've seen the movie like twenty times in preparation for the podcast. (laughs) Um, They both are kind of all of those stories. There's a lot of structural things that are impeding their actual love.
0: Right. Right.
1: Anyway, I tangent. Exactly.
0: There, there's this uh, you know antagonistic obstacle to their love that might be a jealous force that might be. Uh, a sexually aggressive force in some cases in the like Gastons and the Stricklands of the world. But we see some of the same mythological beats here the same narrative structures. And this reaches to the sort of animal bride uh, folk tales as well. These show up across uh, tons of cultures. We have the story of the frog prince, which is a really well known one. Um, And we have like the swan maiden, which turned into Swan Lake but they're stories of mortal beings who marry uh, animals, who marry enchanted humans who take the form of animals, and true love has to unlock their true, beautiful human form. So it's it's an ancient structure that we're playing with here that, uh, that finds its way into Beauty and the Beast and then finds its way into Shape of Water. I would almost call the Beauty and the Beast story its own subgenre or its own genre because it's such a common uh, structure for narratives. But I think that shape of water really upends, really uh, subverts some of the narrative structures of that tale in really, really interesting ways. And I'd recommend going back and listening to our pans labyrinth podcast as well to uh, explore how Guillermo del Toro plays with fairy tale. But I think we're going to get more into that tonight. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you call Beauty and the Beast of its own genre. Um, you know, I try to think of so where does Beauty and the Beast meet? I would say best it's a, it's a fairy tale. Yeah. But what's interesting is that it was written during you the the 18th century. Yeah. So just a piece of historical context, it was written during the Enlightenment, the period in which rational thinking was starting to break headways into superstition at a time in which fairy tales no longer had the relevance and the importance that they they had before then. In fact, it's almost a repudiation of the common myths and folk tales that people would tell each other that in this enlightenment era, out comes this new sort of um, reinvention of the old tropes of this fairy tale.
0: Absolutely. And for a little bit more context on where we are in that time, not only are we in the Enlightenment, but we're in France. And we're, as you can see in any film adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, at the height of Rococo artistic style, which is a deeply intricate, really um, beautiful and gilded, often like with literally gilded gold leaf everywhere. Uh, If you just Google Rococo, you'll see how almost tacky it is to the eye because it's so incredibly ostentatious um, ostentatious and um and decorative and so think about we're we're about 1740 when this tale is is set down to paper it's probably been passed around a little bit with oral tradition but the definitive version has just been set down to paper and we're not that far off from the French revolution so we're only uh, you know a couple decades from beheading the king and queen for being so lavish and so ostentatious with their wealth and having their palaces be so gilded and so uh so dastardly beautiful right
1: yeah absolutely i think um yeah i i totally get where you're coming from there i think to me one of the threads that connects both uh beauty and the beast and shape of water I think there is a bit of uh, philosophy happening under the surface.
0: Of course, yeah. And
1: I think that philosophy, it asks a, a, a question that I think we should all ask, which is, what does it mean for something to be beautiful? And where does beauty reside? And I think that falls under a piece of philosophy called aesthetic philosophy, which is the study of art. Now, before I, I mention this and talk about it, I would like to also say that uh, the study of art and the study of beauty as an intellectual concept are not currently necessarily the same. There are some that argue that art doesn't and shouldn't or doesn't need to be beautiful.
0: I would be someone who argues that.
1: Yeah. And, for and instance. For good reason. and But that's not the debate I'm interested in having tonight. So I'd like to assume for the sake of argument that all art is about being beautiful. Sure. Um, And we can debate whether or not that's true in another podcast. I
0: will surrender that point to you tonight for simplicity.
1: So the idea to me is what does it mean for something to be artful? And what does it mean for something to be beautiful? And I think beauty and the beast and shape of water both have a similar answer. Uh, Before I, I get to what I think their answer is, let's back up and understand the process. Yeah, Traditionally, um, Aesthetics uh, derives from a philosophical school that started, like most things, in ancient Greece. But it's considered an axiology, and I may be mispronouncing that, which is a study of values and judgments. So the idea being that to say something is beautiful, uh, to say something is artful, is to say and make a judgment. So the question is, is, where do these judgments come from? How can we say something is beautiful? So we'll say that the beast is ugly, but his inside is beautiful. Hence, the beast is beautiful. Well, we've made a judgment. I would argue that beauty and truth are somehow synonymous, and in not every single way. But surely, if you can say something is beautiful, it is true that it is beautiful. Beauty is a form of truth. Hence, studying beauty means studying truth.
0: That's such an interesting assertion to make because one of the most like the most popular axioms that we hear about beauty is that it's in the eye of the beholder. We get this sense that it's all about subjectivity, but I think we're making an argument for a, a sort of objectivity in this, right?
1: Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because subjectivity falls under the purview of taste in aesthetics. So, and how do we determine whether something has good taste. If it has good taste, then it is beautiful. For example, I will give you a, a quote from a philosopher. His name is Jean-Baptiste, uh, Jean-Baptiste de Bois, pardon me. He wrote this in 1719. Do we ever reason in order to know whether a ragu be good or bad? Has it ever entered into anybody's head after having settled the geometric principles of taste and defined the quantities of each ingredient that enters into the composition of these messes to examine into the proportion observed in the mixture in order to decide whether it be good or bad. No, this has never practiced. We have a sense given us by nature to distinguish whether the cook acted in according to the rules of his art. People taste the ragu, and though unacquainted with those rules, they're able to tell whether it be good or no. The same may be said in the respect for the productions of mind and of pictures made to please and move us.
0: Whoa. Okay. Yeah. This
1: guy is arguing is that you don't need to know how a good movie was made. You know, whether you saw a good movie and that this is a matter of taste. However, I don't think either of these movies make that argument.
0: Either of these movies being Shape of Water and Beauty and the oh, Beast.
1: Yeah. So, uh,
0: yeah, either of these stories, yes, sure. Either of those stories,
1: thank you. I think that they rather make an argument that beauty is a virtue.
0: Mm, okay.
1: So the idea of taste-based aesthetics means that when we dine in the aesthetic appetites, we will have a reaction, and that reaction will determine whether it's good taste or bad taste. The problem with that is that it is inherently subjective. Even if we take the uh, the example of the ragu, the ragu might have an ingredient in it to which I find displeasurable, but it may be cooked
0: perfectly. Yeah, like mushrooms, yeah.
1: Exactly. Let's say you hate mushrooms.
0: I do, I, I hate mushrooms.
1: And then you taste the mushroom, albeit cooked perfectly, and then suddenly it is an affront to your taste. So in other words, that's saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, It's saying that beauty is itself not a measure of truth, but a measure of one's own subjective experience. I would argue that beauty is a virtue, that it is connected to truth, and that uh, it is connected and disconnected from our own ego, meaning that it's not centered around myself as an individual. This was a point of view that Kant had. This was a point of view that Plato had many other famous philosophers have had. And where we see it most articulated in this movie is that by measure of taste, the creature in Shape of Water is disgusting. is disgusting and revolting. It's articulated many times throughout the movie. It's articulated at first uh, by the character Strickland, who says that, you know, life was made in the image of God, humans were made in the image of God. This creature is not of a godly image. And what he's really saying is, because he has got no idea what God did or didn't do, but he's saying that I find it revolting. I find it unappealing. We see the creature eat a cat, right? Eating one's pet is the definition of bad taste.
0: It. it side note, it, it is, takes a lot for me to see a movie where a cat dies and not walk out saying, I hated that movie. So this tells you how much I liked The Shape of Water, despite the fact that a cat died in it. However,
1: yes. However, the beauty is inner. That there is a kernel of beauty that exists outside of one's individual taste. This movie expresses that beauty symbolically, that when the creature does actions of love and compassion, it glows. Yeah. It literally will turn lights on and become more exterior beautiful. We see this in Beauty and the Beast when finally Belle is ready to embrace the love that she has for this what appears to be a bad taste thing, this ugly creature, that he becomes then more beautiful. He becomes this beautiful prince.
0: Love is transformative in a way, whether it's love that's bestowed on the creature or love that comes from within the creature, it transforms one into something more beautiful, right?
1: Yes. So that gets me to my next point, if you'll permit me. I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent. Oh, you're fine. So what determines whether something is artful? And if we accept the presupposition that artful is the study of beauty, there is a uh, philosopher by the name of Dennis Dunton. And he said that something that is artful, that expresses high art, has these attributes. They, are, uh, they express expertise and virtuosity. So, technical artistry, cultivated, recognized, someone that knows the rules, someone like Beethoven or Mozart or Guillermo del Toro. Right. Non utilitarian pleasure, right? So people enjoy it for its own sake. They don't get some sort of usefulness out of it. So I enjoy a work of art because I enjoy it. It doesn't give me anything back, right? Style, artistic objects, performances, satisfy, satisfy the rules of composition that place them in recognizable styles. So when we look at a uh, Van Gogh, Versus a da Vinci, we can articulate and make an argument about their styles. Criticism, it's something that people should and will criticize. They should debate and they should uh, discuss it. Imitation, it's so good that others want to imitate it. Special focus, so it's set aside from our ordinary experience of life. It's something that focuses on one aspect. And then lastly, imagination something that we can imagine, something that we can dream. We look at all of these pillars, and I'd say that, you know, Gilmel Del Toro's movie, The Shape of Water, holds up to that. But then we ask, where does beauty come from within this movie? Not from the craft, not from its construction. It comes from the ordinary.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: I think Gilmel Del Toro is saying that beauty is everywhere and in everything, and that none of these rules that make something artful, and if artful equals beautiful, are valid.
0: Beauty in the shape of water is in uh, the peeling wallpaper on an apartment or the stacks of books and papers next to uh, you know, several leftover pieces of uh, key lime pie. And beauty is uh, dark wood floorboards, and beauty is an old... Uh, movie theater, or an intricate network of pipes that are sort of bathed in shadow and a little bit of light playing through the rippling water uh, in the tank.
1: And in a Gilmel way, he respects these definitions of art in that he employs them to great expertise and he pays homage to other great works of cinema and other great works of art within there while at the same time argues through these characters that that's not where true beauty lies. And it's not in the eye of the beholder. It is still assuming beauty is a virtue as its own virtue, independent of our own subjective experience. But it's not in the rigorous study of the aesthetic masters as argued by so many other philosophers. It's in, you know, two souls uniting as one.
0: I think in many, many ways I agree with you in your interpretation of this film, but I want to throw some questions at you that I think ultimately will reinforce what you've been saying, but some things from the movie that really stuck out to me in this question of beauty and whether it is in the eye of the beholder. Do So it, you and talked about... And I,
1: I don't want to say that I'm dogmatically saying that's what beauty is. I just think that's what the movie what is the arguing. Saying.
0: And I, I do think largely you're right. But one thing I want to point out, you mentioned that Strickland, uh, the character played by Michael Shannon, who will never play a good guy ever because he's, <laughs> he's just got... He's an asshole. He's just got that face. Uh, it's like, got,
1: I'm an asshole face.
0: Yeah, man. And he does it really well. He gives a, an amazing and striking performance in this movie. And he's terrifying. He's a terrifying Gaston-like figure. Um, but you pointed out that he says, that thing's not made in the image of God. You think God looks like that? and he really does hold himself up as the ideal man. He uh he's a good husband and a good father and he is a uh he he thinks he holds these virtues of decency and hard work and never fucking up and he and, duty. and strength and duty. Uh and so he believes that he has this pure insight into what is beautiful and what is acceptable. But the other characters that we focus on in this film are generally characters on the margins, right? So we have a gay character, we have a disabled character, we have a character of color, and we have characters who are uh, are lower class and who are scraping by in the 60s, which is a, a tumultuous, tumultuous time in America. So it's a difficult time for people who are on the margins to make their mark on the world. And For them to find connections with each other in this story is really powerful because they find a community in a place that is not necessarily hospitable to their very existence. But these characters, and I'll point out to you very, very clearly, whenever they encounter the creature who is credited as the amphibian man played superbly by Doug Jones, whenever they encounter him, they say things like, my God, he's beautiful. Uh, Richard Jenkins, who plays Giles, looks at him and is awestruck and says, he's so beautiful. And Dr. Hofstadler, who uh, is the Russian spy who is working uh, closely with the asset in, uh, in Occam in the lab, says, I won't harm a beautiful, innocent creature. And Eliza, of course, is so taken by his appearance when she first sees him that it overcomes her and she falls in love. So there's something being said.
1: Is there a question here?
0: (laughs) There's something being said about the characters who are looking from the outside in, about characters who clearly we are on their side because they are pure of heart and they are loving and they're compassionate. They immediately, without question, see him as beautiful. So I wonder if beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder, it's not just a matter of taste, but... Your inner virtue influences your way of perceiving beauty outside of you.
1: Okay. Um, so I love where you're going there. I think that's really interesting. I would add on to it, because I think everything you said there is correct. Our heroes see the creature as beautiful. So that says something about our heroes, Right. Um, whereas the villains in it the antagonists yeah. see it as as ugly and and as bad and as sinful and as something that should be destroyed, so yes, I think that says something about those characters, and I think you're right to draw the social economic marginalization of them as like sort of their link. I would say as well that that that's part of del Toro's magical realism, yeah, sure, that's, that's part of the fantasy fabric that he weaves. Typical people don't look at a l- legitimate you know half man half fish and react in like positive light you know it, realistically speaking, if this were not a piece of fiction, most people would encounter that and be scared fucking shitless, and that would be their natural sure, reaction yeah. so I think you're right to draw on that there's something the virtue of these characters because they've been on the outside because they've been on the fringe. Because that they are not accepted by the mainstream, they're able to see the exterior beauty of this creature, where most just see a monster. So I think that is a a great thread there, and I totally am in line with it.
0: Yeah. Um, were you
1: saying that though, just out of curiosity, as like a little like poke? Were you like trying to poke a little like hole in my argument?
0: It's just uh, I think a way to to flesh out your argument because I I do think that uh, the shape of water is arguing for a a deeper or more nuanced approach to beauty being in the eye of the beholder. But I think you're right in summing that up, that it says more about the person. It says more about the person perceiving. It says more about the beholder than it does about the object.
1: Absolutely. And I think when we examine our own reactions to things, they often say more about us. I think that is a fundamental truth Rather than about the thing we're examining, I think it's really, really fucking hard to examine something objectively.
0: Absolutely.
1: You know, and, and whether that's you're exam- examining something objectively because you're a scientist or an engineer, or whether you're a like film or literature student, it's re- it's equally as hard to examine something without your own personal bias. But that is why I think beauty in the eye of the beholder is incorrect. Yeah. You know because. If I am able to say whatever I deem as beautiful, whatever I deem as art is art, I am at the same time saying there is no beauty and there is no art.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting, it's, it's sort of the everybody being a unique special snowflake. If everybody's special, then no one's special.
1: I think it's in that same vein because if something is purely beauty, based, beautiful, based upon the way I look at it, you're actually saying the same thing about truth, that there is no actual truth. And that's how you get to a fact-free world. Yeah. Where it's everyone's individual perspective is okay and valid. You know, to me, I think if you dedicate your life to the study of beauty in whatever form or facet, you have a level of expertise that goes beyond that of the person just reacting because of their tastes. So I think the, I think the, the common colloquialism of beauty in the eye of the beholder, it makes sense because we all have different opinions and reactions, but I think we're not really talking about beauty. When we say that we're talking about taste. Yeah. Taste is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is a truth of the universe and it's so much harder to get to the truth of the universe And Del Toro argues in Shape of Water, in my view, that the beauty can be in the ordinary, that it doesn't take an artistic master and only an artistic master to create something beautiful. Or to
0: recognize something beautiful.
1: Absolutely. It can just happen when fate puts two unlikely actors next to each other and they happen to fall in love. I don't mean actors in the cinematic sense. Yeah actors in the like two unlikely individuals interact. And then suddenly, you know, because of that, they're able to create this beautiful thing called love. And if you've ever been in love and in true real love, there is nothing more beautiful. Like, and no painting can capture it. You know, no, no uh, sunset can inspire you in that same way. You know, when you're truly in actual real love, it is the most beautiful thing that could ever happen to you or you could ever experience. And I think that experience is independent of subjective reality because people can define that love any way they want, but when it's real, it is truly beautiful.
0: And I think that beauty extends to things that are, are more than just pleasure, right? So beauty can be found of course, in the ordinary, in the uh, most mundane of moments. And beauty can be found in tenderness and beauty can be found in passion and beauty can be found even in heartbreak and grief. Uh, There is something to be found that is marvelous in all of those stations of love.
1: Correct. And I think that does go back to the other definitions of artful, which I think some of our are are very valid in which it's non-utilitarian in its pleasure. Because to say something is pleasurable is to say it's useful, because be, feeling pleasure is good. We like to feel it, so it's useful for us. But if we can say that it is non-utilitarian and that we don't get that same pleasure, then we get a little closer to the the artful, true beauty, and divine.
0: And what del Toro is doing to go back again to that definition of artful, uh, to innovate the form He has, he's told us so many times how in love he is with cinema, how in love he is with classic cinema. And we know from uh, Pan's Labyrinth, we know from so much of his work that he's in love with fairy tales. So he is very interested in taking the forms that he is so deeply in love with, and then just lightly turning them on their heels. So this film uh, takes the creature from the Black Lagoon and puts him in a Fred and Ginger, you know, dance number. And it takes... Uh, the Beauty and the Beast, and it puts it into the context of Betty Grable and Shirley Temple and all of the classic films that maybe your parents or your grandparents grew up on that are romantic, that are idealized, uh, but in so many ways encompass so much of the American spirit and that that live really deeply, deeply in our our subconsciouses.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's also interesting that he turned the Russian spy into a hero that he, yeah. in, he inverted so many things of the stereotypes of that time where the Russian spy is the bad guy. Yeah. You know, in this, in this context and in this movie, the Russian spy is actually not the bad guy, you know? And it's, and it, I think there is a, a commentary there both on the American and the Soviet institutions in this movie as being corruptive because they can't see beauty when they encourage it. All they can see is their geopolitical dy- dynamic. And so you have Strickland being manipulated by the American institution. And then you have, uh, um, Hofstadler or Dmitri Dimitri being it or Bob being influenced by the Russian geopolitical dynamic, both of which distorting and contorting their, their worldview. To a whole other layer that you can interpret this this movie on.
0: Absolutely, and it's it's kudos to Del Toro again because this so easily could have been uh, a piece of uh, you know traditional horror or traditional monster or traditional uh, Cold War paranoia as a movie, and it could have tipped its head more closely to those genres than others. But for him to have leaned into romance uh, and populate it with the plot elements of Cold War and uh, and horror and monster movies is a really innovative way to play with the form and really go back to the movies that he loves so, so much.
1: Yeah, totally. I completely am with you there. Um, what else we got here?
0: So I want to talk a little bit more about, and I, I thank you so much for introducing those, uh, those ideas of aesthetic philosophy because they play so much into that romance that I... Uh, you know, like we said, so many people saw this movie and called it, or didn't see this movie and called it the fish banging movie.
1: I mean, yes, that's Everybody's everywhere. Everybody's calling
0: it the fish banging movie, and it's so much more than a fish banging movie.
1: Even though it um, is a fish banging movie. She bangs
0: a fish. Um, but fish he's man. A, he's an Amazon River god. He is a god. So it's a little bit more than that. I'm
1: glad that you brought that up, because is that worth discussing? Is the 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 creature a god?
0: Del Toro has confirmed that he is a god. Okay, so... He's a god.
1: What does that mean then?
0: Well, it means he is... It means we shouldn't look at this as bestiality, necessarily. We shouldn't look at this as a woman banging a fish. We should look at this as a woman banging a god, um, which we know from mythology all over the place. But it's also, you know, we can look to the incredible acts of compassion and the acts of gift giving and the acts of almost sacrifice to this character, to this creature, that uh, really show us a, a different side of what we might consider divine, especially in a story that harps so much on biblical narratives.
1: Yeah, I, um, I think that's interesting because there is this push and pull between a sort of militarized Christianity that we see uh, versus a more um, simple paganism, I would say. Yeah. So if this creature is a god, meaning that he's not the only god, there are other gods, and that gods are physical beings, they're not transcendental beings, meaning they don't live in another universe. They live on earth, among and, us, and yeah. interact in earth, which is how most myths are. You know, Zeus lives on a mountain called Olympus. You know, uh, Marduk uh, walks into Babylon every year for New Year. Um, So the, these gods are physical things. This creature is a god. That would mean that... Where am I going with this? How am I going to articulate this? So you know the scene... Bear with me, listeners, because yeah. I'm rambling a little bit. So do you know the scene in which the creature is gone and the general comes and he confronts Strickland and Strickland goes a man, a good man, a decent man. He's never failed. But this one time, how much more does a man have to prove? He almost is talking about himself in the third person, which to me like connotates that he is discussing. What does it mean to be a man in front of this power, this power being the general, which is, he is almost deifying. And the general's response is like, you know what? Morality, it's not really useful to me.
0: It's a commodity.
1: I can sell it, but what I need you to do is not fuck this up. Otherwise, I'll unfucking make you. I'll make you not exist. So he responds to his prayer as an angry deity,
0: as a, an Old Testament God.
1: Right. And we put the stark contrast to the creature who's more gentle. He kills, right? He kills the cat. He kills Strickland. So he is capable of and and wanting to take life. Yeah. Um, but he is still more compassionate and gentle in that he hurts, um, you know, Giles, mm-hmm. but then heals him. Yeah. Giles doesn't have to like worship him and and ask for forgiveness. He just heals him because he feels bad. So there's a more gentleness. So there's this religious tug in, tug in, tug of war happening between the general and the creature, in which there is almost this like argument of what what is divinity, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm kind of rambling here. Are you with
0: me? No, I'm totally with you. And this is you know, Shape of Water is also a movie where we constantly see background footage of the story of Ruth. And we have uh, references to uh, Old Testament stories like the the tale of Samson and Delilah, uh, which is really uh, powerful in this narrative. So the other figure that we can look to is the other mysterious figure in Eliza, whose background we don't know very much of, but she was found in a river, right? She turned up like Moses on the river with these gill-like scars. And so she's got this background that is totally shrouded in mystery and she doesn't have speech but yet she is able to uh to undermine and to undercut the most powerful figure in her uh in the lab that she works in she's able to subvert all expectations of her and not just from a narrative level but from a contemporary perspective when we watch her and we watch the choices that she makes she disobeys she uh, she sneaks the creature out. She falls in love with the creature against all expectations. She cares for it. She makes moves sexually uh, you know, on this creature, and so she takes control of her, her own sexual experience. And so she's an interesting other figure to compare in this um, understanding of the religious undertones of the story because she calls back to, uh, and to quote again our... Hans Labyrinth podcast, she calls back to these disobedient women of the Bible and disobedient women of mythology who uh, take power from the men who uh, sort of lord over them. So she's an interesting counterpoint for that.
1: Yeah, I totally agree, and I think it is worth note that of the more modern religions that are referenced, it only references older. So the you mentioned the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So it, it it references a time in which gods were angry and mean
0: and vengeful and
1: scary, and every reference has to do with some sort of an act of retribution and righteousness that's divine and unfucking merciful. And then here we see this more gentle um, you know, deity. You know, I think it's interesting when we say the term that he is a God. Yeah. We have to remember that that's God lowered case G. Right. Right. That's not all powerful. That's not all knowing. That's just a like super powerful, magical being living in, in and amongst us. And, um, whereas I think Strickland's problem is that he wants to be this righteous man. He wants to be this, this weapon of divine retribution, but without the morality behind it, he becomes just a corrupted individual. And we see that in his fingers, which will not be reattached, but just corrupt, right? So he ends up wanting to be this weapon of divine vengeance, this instrument of godliness, but because he's not capable of seeing beauty, which if we take my axiom, beauty means truth. He's not capable of seeing the truth. He's not capable of healing which means he has these rotten fingers.
0: Yeah, they reject his body. They reject being part of him. Uh, But this takes me back again to what you were saying about beauty and aesthetics in that we have these ideas about what it means to be beautiful, what it means to be artful, but we understand that there is something transcendent about something that is truly beautiful. And it's not enough to just follow the rules. This man in Strickland believes that it is enough to prove yourself as good and decent to follow the rules and not fuck up and do everything right and do your duty. And if you uh, step out of line, then you have really crossed and you are bad. But without an underlying truth, without an underlying morality, there is no beauty there. Following the rules is not enough. It takes intention. It takes actual compassion. It takes Good uh and decent virtue, like the characters who fill out the the supporting cast and the main cast. it takes true deep virtue to transcend from just following the rules to true beauty. I'll call back to you. so we go we have a a membership to the Philly Art Museum, and we see these amazing paintings and sometimes you know we'll see something that really moves us that looks in nothing. In no way like reality. And then sometimes there's this one painting there that looks like an interior designer's rendering of the inside of a church. It looks, it's like a medieval painting, but it looks so realistic that it could be an AutoCAD drawing. And I look at it and I think that is so distasteful and I can't stand looking at it because there is nothing transcendent about this. But then you show me uh, a less realistic but more inventive, more innovative, more thoughtful portrait of, uh, of an interior, and I'll be blown away. It's not enough to just follow society's rules. It has, to, has It has to have something behind it.
1: And I think the character Eliza articulates that beautifully when she asked Giles for help. And Giles was like, it's illegal, it's dangerous, I can't do it, You know, what, what do you want from me? and like this creature is not even human how can you even call it human and she says are we if we don't help him are we still human she says that it's that we're at a point where she's followed every rule she's followed every convention but there's an inner calling which is to protect the creature and protecting the creature she asks if we let this creature die we're letting our own humanity die and at that point Fuck the rules. Yeah. You know, like, fuck what everyone else tells us to do. Like, there is something that's more important than me. It's more important than you. And, you know, being virtuous, doing the right thing, you can't just do it when it's convenient. Like, you have to do it all the fucking time. And Eliza is the character that understands that. And because she understands that, her friends, Zelda and Giles, they ultimately follow her leadership. And then even Dmitri abandons Russia to follow, you know, her leadership as well. Yeah. Because she's the only character that truly gets what it means to do the right thing. Everyone else follows her and the creature gets to live.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's amazing.
1: It really is. It's quite, it's quite beautiful. Uh, can I ask a question on a unrelated topic? Sure. And what we're currently discussing. What do you think of the ending?
0: Um, do you mean how did I just feel about it emotionally or what do I think happened?
1: I think both.
0: Okay. Um, I. So uh, when I watch a Del Toro film, when I watch any film really, but especially a Del Toro film, I know I'm steeped in a magic realism that is going to talk to a certain uh, level of me that most stories are not going to talk to me on. Um, And so I'm often not totally interested in committing to the literal exactly what happened at the end of the story, but more to the emotional resonance that it has. Um, So what really strikes me about the ending of Shape of Water, when uh, the creature picks up the dying Eliza and jumps into the water and kisses her and opens her gills and they float off forever and giles's narration over it says you know maybe they maybe they stayed in love maybe maybe they lived what is more important to me than the truth of what happened in that story is the potential so go
1: on i'm 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 really intrigued
0: so it's sort of schrodinger's cat like um schrodinger's cat is the thought experiment where uh we're dealing with like Uh, quantum particles. So if you have a box and there's a cat in it and you don't know whether the cat is alive or dead, until you open the box and see if it's alive or dead, it is both alive and dead at the same time. It is both things. Um, Eliza and the creature are both alive and dead. They will both live forever and they never lived. Uh, They're part of a movie and so they are not real, but also they are more real to us than people that we walk by on a street because they touched a part of us in a different way than you know, some real people will ever touch us.
1: Whoa, mind blown. I think that was amazing. Um, yeah, I, I aligned with that very, very, very much. I would also say that if we take the interpretation that the creature is not a, a being that, that came out of biological evolution, but is some sort of a god, some sort of a magical beast, that magical creature is a, is a water deity, right? And I think every great mythological story has a hero that at some point gets to meld with and into the divine, whether that's Heracles becoming a constellation, whether that's Odysseus going into the underworld, that the heroes in the classical fairy tale classical mythological sense um they intertwine and and link with this divinity i think if we understand that interpretation of the movie that oh shit he is a god when he takes her into the water that is eliza's sacrifice getting her to the the divine plane
0: yeah her communion
1: to meld with the water god where she gets to become one with the ocean and the water where she becomes the shape of water. You know, and I think my interpretation is not just like what you said, which I think is so spot on. It's not a literal. It's like she doesn't literally fill up her bathroom with water and have sex with the creature in it. I think that's a symbolic. That's that's like poetry in film. Yeah. I think this is like poetry in film too, but I think to me it symbolizes the hero finally getting to truly mingle and become divine and one with this divine energy.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I I love that interpretation. Um, Yeah. I think to close, I just want to bring us back- Bring it home. Momentarily to Beauty and the Beast and a question that you posed earlier in the podcast about how interesting it is that here in the middle of the Enlightenment, we have a new fairy tale being put down to paper. And I think the reason for that is that Every time, every epoch, every era needs its fairy tale. It needs an allegorical way of understanding how to continue living your life within the structures that are put down for you. And Beauty and the Beast, uh, in some criticisms of it, in some understandings of it, is about preparing women for the potential danger of an arranged marriage. You might be married off to this beastly human being, and you're gonna have to learn to love him beneath his rough exterior um and there's a lot of truth to that interpretation of it now Guillermo del Toro is of course really interested in adapting and innovating fairy tales for a modern audience and he gives us a fairy tale that's necessary for our times even though he's exploring it through the turmoil of the 1960s and the uh sort of zealotry uh and the the marginalization of people um that seems so far away from us. It's not far from today, truly. And what it does with the love story is give us a character who is perceived as uh, as handicapped, as disabled, as without uh, completeness, as incomplete, who finds someone who sees her as complete. And it's a story of a woman who gives and who takes and who sacrifices and who takes what she wants, and is in many ways sexually open and aggressive, and in many ways uh, finds a relationship where there is this incredible equity uh, between her and this god. And she's associated with water, she's associated with eggs, these symbols of fecundity and fertility and these goddess-like images where she's put right on par with the divine figure that she falls in love with.
1: Yeah. I think that is a great point to bring it home. Um, And there's so much more I think we left on the table. Oh man. I think we'll have to come back to shape of water to discuss fully its uh, implications about diversity, its implications about love um, on a practical level. What does it mean to have a marriage Uh, What does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to seek power? What does it mean to be powerless? Are all questions that it asks. They get the heart of it and ask the question of what does it mean to have something beautiful? And if you can have something beautiful, even for a moment, you have a piece of truth. And that truth is universal. And I think that is its, its heart. And I think that is what so many great stories aspire to and Shape of Water in the Gilmoral Datorian fashion. It just, it brings home the goods. It walks the walk. It talks the talk. It makes the fish fucking movie amazing.
0: And it's a fairy tale for our time.
1: And until next time, guys, be
0: kind. Be kind.